0: You've got a good beginning. Hit and miss and trial and error. It just depends again on breaking the records over radio. Rock music blares! Door slam! People yell! Children scream! Sirens whine! Trucks rumble and roar, and rock music blares, 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 blares. Is there any escape?
1: joining us. You're listening to Escape from Noise on Radio Triekland, broadcasting out of Freiburg, Germany. This is the second installation of Escape from Noise. Last month on our first broadcast we talked about Pauline Oliveros, um, her successes, and what we decided was the ultimate failure of her artistic project. This project, of course, went beyond just music into social and metaphysical territory as well. Uh, But Oliveros, in the end, we decided, offers us no escape from noise. However, on reflection, we realized that there was a small problem with this diagnosis. We hadn't really defined what we mean by noise. Noise is pretty simple at first glance. Think of a lot of examples. White noise, maybe noise music, a noisy street or restaurant. Um, What brings all those together is um, a certain idea that might be hard to name, but you know it when you hear it. There's something uncomfortable, jarring, even painful about noise, something dissonant, inharmonious, structureless. Something that you can't make sense of, or if there is a sense, it's only of disorientation and anxiety. On the surface level, a lot of Oliveros' music seemed to offer a pretty good escape from noise. Her instrumental work is usually very harmonic, peaceful, and relaxing, and really beautiful, honestly. And her most experimental work is based on the idea of accepting and exploring all the sounds around you, beautiful or not, finding meaning and pleasure in sounds that would instinctively seem ugly or boring to most people. But we decided that this is no escape. because of the hidden politics, money, and compromises littered throughout her career. Uh, we looked at her turn away from politics in the aftermath of the Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King assassinations, after the crimes committed by American forces in Vietnam, after the self-immolation of George Wynne Jr. on the campus that she was teaching at. Now, that might be understandable on its own. It was a very confusing and difficult time to be alive at the end of the 60s, but um, at the same time that she was turning away from politics, she was in the middle of a critical period of her career which was funded by the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, those handmaidens of American imperialism. So her music music and musical project, which is based on a withdrawal from struggle, a sort of passive acceptance of the world as it is a a retreat into the self starts to seem quite suspicious. The noise that we're talking about in Escape from Noise is what Oliverus was trying not to hear. It's not necessarily auditory noise. It's the noise of exploitation, of mass killings, of the impoverishment and starvation of entire nations of people, of military coups and political assassinations, of death squads and arson. It is, in short, the noise of human suffering. In the modern day, it's the noise of people suffering and dying of treatable illnesses in America because they can't afford to pay for treatment or medication. It's the noise of economic migrants drowning in the Mediterranean and losing their way in the Sonora Desert. It's the noise of sweatshops where consumer goods are produced, of the slums of Bombay and Buenos Aires, the people in Venezuela, Iran, Iraq and Cuba who are unable to buy medicine and food because of US sanctions on their governments. It's the noise of countries in the global south, even southern Europe that have been forced into debt, stripped for parts and left to rot in unemployment and poverty. It's the noise of police violence everywhere in the world. The noise of wildfires, floods, storms and of millions of people leaving their homes because of climate change. It's the noise of the internal dissonance that comes from knowing that all of this has happened, is happening and will continue to happen for as long as we can know, without there being anything that each of us can realistically do about it. No, I don't mean to be so negative, I think that pessimism is rarely productive, but a sober accounting of the problems which one wishes to solve is very valuable. Um, the reason that I've started making this show because recently I've been reading a lot of books and watching a lot of movies from the 60s and the early 70s and I was struck by this subtle um, unspoken but powerful difference between the, the art of that time and the art of the present day. Um, I think back then there was a massive wealth of artists, musicians, writers, politicians, um, all kinds of people um, who thought they'd found the way out in one way or another obviously uh, based on what's happened in the 50 years since then they were all wrong but at least they were able to believe that a way out was possible believe that they had found it Um, the counterculture um, and i think people usually use the word counterculture the term counterculture in a sort of anthropological sense as like a defined bounded group of people like a culture um, separate from mainstream american society that's found a unique way of living but Um, I think of the counterculture also in the meaning of culture in an artistic and aesthetic sense. Um, A culture that was um, founded on countering um, the dominant political and aesthetic beliefs of the time. Art not merely for entertainment or even just for insight into the psyche or the social being, but art as a way to create the new world that so many believed was imminent. Talking about artists in the counterculture who saw their work as part of a program of human liberation. Maybe not the source of liberation or even the driving force, but a necessary part. Um, this comes across um, all forms of art, all genres of music, even people working within the forms of folk or jazz or what we would call classical or electronic or even um, pop and rock music. The purpose of Escape from Noise is to investigate and try and understand some of these musicians and their artistic projects, and to see if they might still have the same potential for liberation for us in the present day. And I I don't want to give too much away, but um, if I could answer the question, is there any Escape from Noise in the affirmative, I would have already, but for the foreseeable future these broadcasts will follow the structure of the final sequence of a B-grade horror movie with you and I rattling the handles of a series of locked doors, doubling back down dead-end hallways, our desperation causing us to slip as we turn blind corners, all the while the sound of the footsteps of the nameless killer drawing closer and closer and closer. So on the broadcast tonight, we'll attempt to answer, or at least to more fully define, uh, three questions. What is noise? Why is it bad? Or why aren't we to try and escape from it? And third, what might an escape look like? We'll be doing that by looking primarily at the music of Leland James Kirby, alias The Caretaker. Um, Throughout the show, sometimes I'll call him Kirby, sometimes The Caretaker. They're the same guy. However, unlike the usual structure of the show, What we're interested in this week is not so much his work and artistic project as it's defined on its own terms, but rather how this artistic project embodies some ideas and concepts that are already in the air, namely defining and escaping noise. Um, So we're going to take a lot of digressions into the works of sympathetic and similar artists, musicians, but also writers and filmmakers. So Kirby is a prolific, experimental electronic musician, music producer. Um, he's from Manchester originally, but he's lived in Berlin, and he's now based in Krakow, Poland. He's recorded under a number of pseudonyms, but the most well-known is The Caretaker. And as you can hear, you're listening to The Caretaker right now. Um, what defines the various releases um, is the use of old records, most often big band and swing records from the 20s and 30s, and then oh, taking these and manipulating them by chopping, looping, and burying them under echo, and as well as delay, hiss, and crackle. I've chosen the caretaker because I think his music best emphasizes what I mean by the titular noise of the show. At the heart of his music is a descent into noise, an obsession with the inevitable surrender to senselessness and dissonance Um, I'm skeptical of asking artists, especially musicians, what their work is about. Uh, But I think we can use Kirby's words as a starting point and not an ending point. Um, So when you ask him about his work as a caretaker, he'll always bring up um, Alzheimer's disease as a central inspiration. Um, He'll talk a lot about the experience of the dissolution of memory, of the loss of awareness of the present, of the return to a distantly remembered past, a past jumbled, fragmented, lacking orientation, or a specific place and time. Of his album, Everywhere at the End of Time, he said in an interview, I realized that the last three stages had to be made from the viewpoint of post-awareness, once people become unaware that there is a problem. Then there is a drift in thought patterns, also reality crumbles. Dreams and nightmares become a reality, confusion sets in. Of course, there might be the odd moment of bliss and escape. It's hard to comprehend this, as our own reality with healthy minds makes full and complete sense to us. People with dementia find themselves in their own reality, but it's one of loops and confusion. I was attracted to working with that as a framework for creation." Now, he doesn't really go beyond this um, sort of framework of mental illness and Alzheimer's disease in particular in his interviews. Um, He often expresses indifference towards music criticism and theorizing and a disdain for artists who over theorize their own work. Um, One thing that I think is important to know about Kirby is that he's a really prolific producer of music. Um, He's usually producing, he claims, um, between one to ten tracks in a day for the album that would become everywhere at the end of time, he produced um, at least 200 tracks and then narrowed it down to an album's worth of material. And I think this is important to know because it speaks of an obsession or a compulsion, some kind of restless search not for perfection but immersion in the medium, in some idea that he's chasing. Um, There's something in the work that compels him beyond the thought of the finished-released product, beyond even the thought of anyone that might be listening to it. Um, There's a phrase um, from Deleuze and Guattari's essay What is Minor Literature? Um, They're writing about Kafka but I think that this um, applies very well to Kirby. They say um, to write as a dog who digs his hole a rat who makes his burrow and to do that to find his own point of underdevelopment his own jargon a third world of his own a desert of his own. Now what Deleuze and Guadari are talking about here are the creation of a new space, sort of new independent universe within a work of art. Um, And in this new universe, the laws of physics, the ground rules um, are somehow different. Uh, Maybe a skewed and distorted version of the one we live in, but maybe something much more unprecedented. I think that that's something that Kirby does um, with his work. He's looking to create a whole Um, independent universe within maybe but separate from the one that we usually live in and because of this quality of Kirby's work um, one I think that um, the image of a rat making its burrow is a a nice one something that's made within the world but separate from it in a way a small world within the larger one that we all live in Um, I think that there's more to Kirby's work than just the, uh, the Alzheimer's interpretation of it um, I think there's a, a larger uh, meaning that can be drawn out of it um, and so looking for this larger meaning um, I came across the work of the cultural critic Mark Fisher um, who's done a lot of writing about Kirby and the Caretaker Project um, Fisher is most known for his work Capitalist Realism, uh, which is a broad characterization of the failures of cultural production under contemporary capitalism. So, a quick background on Fisher. Um, He tends to base his criticism around the uh, pretty standard Marxist idea of base and superstructure, which is, uh, in short, um, that economic production forms the base structure of society. Um, and everything about it besides that, um, the codes of law, the political structures and processes, and especially in this case, the culture, are symptoms of that base of economic production, like how things are made um, and who's in control. Um, I think something that expresses this quite well is um, Marx's idea of social consciousness. Um, with the famous quote, it is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but on the contrary, their social being determines their consciousness. So what he's saying in that quote is that um, if you wanna know why people think the way they think or feel the way they feel or have the desires that they have, uh, what you have to do is first look at economic production, look at um, how things are made, how people get their money, Uh, because this is um, the primary uh, cause of everything within society. So um, coming back to Fisher, um, his typical critical or interpretive move um, is to observe how a piece of art takes certain cultural ideas or artistic tropes and um, embodies them, but then reinterprets them in its own way. So to look at um, these sort of standard um, tropes, ideas drawn from the culture, um, that lets him go back to um, the base structure of economic production, tells us something new about um, the political economy that we all live in. Uh, so one thing about Fisher, you can call it a weakness or a strength, um, I think of it as both, um, is that all of his interpretations come back to a small set of theories that he's developed. Um, So some of these are capitalist realism, which I already mentioned, or hauntology, or the weird and the eerie. They've all got these, like, catchy names, and when he's talking about um, music or books or movies, he tends to talk about them in the terms of these ideas that um, he's always coming back to. Um, Often it seems like his only goal as a critic is to see works of art as manifestations of his own pre-existing ideas. Um, Although the ideas are of a large enough scope to do this, um, if you take him at his word, um, capitalist realism and hauntology are all-encompassing cultural and collective psychological processes which infiltrate and soak through everything, um, leaving nothing untouched by them. Um, And whether this is a good or bad thing on Fisher's part, uh, this sort of bringing everything back to a few ideas. Depends on whether or not you accept uh, his diagnoses. So with the caretaker, the idea that Fisher keeps coming back to is hauntology. Hauntology is sort of a slippery term. Um, For a good definition of it, you can check out his book. It's called Ghosts of My Life. Uh, it's a really good c- collection of um, cultural criticism and music criticism, um, but I can try and define it um, in short. It's basically nostalgia, uh, but the difference is with nostalgia it's usually a desire for the past to be in a part of our lives which we've left behind. Ontology is different because the thing that's desired is not specifically our past, it's um, for the possibilities which would have been possible in the past, the things that people in the past dreamed were possible but haven't come to pass. Um, Nostalgia for what Fisher calls lost futures. Um, Here's a pretty good quote that um, defines it pretty well, I think. Um, This is from Ghosts of My Life. Fisher says, The artists that came to be labeled hauntological were suffused with an overwhelming melancholy and they were preoccupied with the way in which technology materialized memory. Hence a fascination with television, vinyl records, audio tape, and with the sound of these technologies breaking down. This fixation on materialized memory led us to what is perhaps the principal sonic signature of hauntology, the use of crackle, the surface noise made by vinyl. Crackle makes us aware that we are listening to a time that is out of joint. It won't allow us to fall into the illusion of presence. In hauntological music, there is an implicit acknowledgement that the hopes created by post-war electronica or by the euphoric dance music of the 1990s have evaporated. Not only has the future not arrived, it no longer seems possible. Yet at the same time, the music constitutes a refusal to give up on the desire for the future. This refusal gives the melancholy a political dimension because it amounts to a failure to accommodate to the closed horizons of capitalist realism. I'm not entirely convinced by the optimistic turn that Fisher tries to give it at the end where he says that basically um, in the very sadness and melancholy of this music um, is a recognition that things could be another way um, and therefore it's it's revolutionary um, simply in the fact that it acknowledges that another world is possible. Um, that seems like a very low bar. What we're looking for on Escape From Noise is, of course, something which goes beyond the recognition that things could be different and tries to create that difference um, in the world, in the here and now. Um, But one of the reasons that I chose The Caretaker for this episode is the fact that his music really embodies this, um, embodies noise, embodies a surrender to noise, Um, is so hopeless in its characterization of this thing that we're trying to call noise. So um, this is most obviously happening on the individual level, on this sort of descent into forgetfulness, into disorientation um, that Kirby associates with Alzheimer's disease. But Fisher gives us the tools to think about it on a cultural level as well. So, the caretaker's music um, doesn't try to escape this noise at all, but it's trying to define it and illustrate it emotionally in as much detail as possible. So, we were talking earlier about um, Mark Fisher's tendency to bring everything back to these like massive, all encompassing cultural ideas. Um, He does this with the caretaker as well. Like, remember when kirby talks about his music it's always from the standpoint of the individual Um, but fisher allows to think about this um, as sort of a signet key for a greater cultural condition Um, the amnesia and alzheimer's of the individual can be seen as something that we're all suffering through collectively um, at the cultural level this is fisher again he says, let's not imagine that this condition afflicts only a few unfortunates. Isn't, in fact, theoretically pure anterior grade amnesia, the postmodern condition par excellence? The present, broken, desolated, is constantly erasing itself, leaving few traces. Things catch your attention for a while, but you do not remember them for very long. But the old memories persist intact. So the anterior grade amnesia that he's talking about this quote um, it comes from the title of one of uh, Kirby's albums um, and it's defined as the inability to form new memories but still remember the old ones. One in which the only thing that remains um, in sort of your, your mental architecture is the very distant past in, in which the present has disappeared entirely. So what Fisher's trying to do here is say that this um, psychological condition um, is akin to a cultural one that we're all experiencing in some way. There's the argument that contemporary culture is unable or unwilling to produce new cultural forms, something that would be adequate to describe the present moment and maybe point to a way a way out of the present moment, a way to solve some of the problems that we're facing. Um, socially, culturally, politically. But what we get instead, uh, Fisher says, is just endless repetition of the past, Um, but not the real past, a sort of imaginary version of the past in which everything has been made perfect, um, in which there are no real problems, a sort of idyllic, utopian version of the past. And then this defines how we think about the present, we're always looking to get back to and maintain this this idyllic past instead of looking towards the future instead of even really looking at the problems of the present um, so fisher talks about um, e- this is a quote echoes and reverberations which float free of any originating sound in a sea of hiss and static so what he's talking about there is the idea that um, these representations of the past have been totally separated from what life was actually like, what people's desires were in the past, what they dreamed the future might be like. Instead, they sort of exist um, on their own without any real link to history. So two examples that Fisher uses that I think are quite funny are two um, really popular groups from the 2000s, um, the Arctic Monkeys and Amy Winehouse. Now, what Fisher says about them is that they're engineered to sound like they came from the past. Um, the Arctic Monkeys are supposed to sound like a sort of 80s post-punk band. Amy Winehouse is supposed to sound like a 60s soul singer. And the fact that these are the people that are the most popular, they're the ones at the top of the music industry, signifies some kind of desire for this polished version of the past. Um, an 80s post-punk rebellion but without anything to be rebelled against you know 60s soul without um, the struggles of the civil rights movement and so what we're left with is sort of the, the shells the external appearances of these old forms but without any of the substance you know this music is more polished, more perfect than ever but it doesn't mean anything, there's no like desire or struggle within it um, it exists only to be consumed as the lightest form of entertainment. So now we're starting to edge from the um, the memories of the individual where we started with James Kirby to now sort of memories on a collective level, you know, the memories of music, of the past, sort of summoning up an idea of what the past might have been like in, in its most idyllic ver- version. Um, So what's the appeal of the past for Fisher? Why does he take such an interest in music like The Caretaker? Um, The starting point for him, I think, is the disorientation of the present. Uh, The fact that the popular culture of the present um, hides its lack of substance behind like a blizzard of the shells of old forms. The important move that The Caretaker makes is a reach back to the past, but in a different way, in a sort of, uh, in a way that describes a sort of like yearning for something solid, you know, in the way that everything disappears in the caretaker's music, you can see an acknowledgement that the past is gone, that it's something that we can't get back to a sort of, you know, an argument against the sort of of persistence of these forms the Fisher talks about with the Arctic Monkeys or uh, Amy Winehouse. Um, So it's not that um, the 20s are a time that um, the caretaker specifically wants to go back to. Um, Instead, they kind of stand for the past in abstract, you know, the past as a point at which we could have changed things, you know, the the point at which, like, progress or something different was still possible. a point outside of the um, endless circulation of the present. And so what Mark Fisher sees in The Caretaker's Music is sort of an attempt to make time linear again, to make time something which passes and then is gone. You know, this is an important counter to what Fisher sees as the um, endless circulation of the present. You know, Um, so noise here is both this sort of senseless cacophony of the present in which um all these old forms are being recreated and polished and made more perfect and more perfect but without any sort of change or development um so it's both that but also the sort of quieter more subtle noise that's present in the caretaker's music um that this is the noise of the past echoing itself into silence um you know, of echoes slowly decaying until you can't really tell what they're echoing anymore before they finally um, stop repeating whatsoever. And I think an interesting counterpoint to the caretaker um, considering these ideas of repetition and linearity is um, Chuck Person, um, the alias of the electronic musician One-O-Tricks-Point-Never. Um, so he made an album called Echo Jams, um, under the name Chuck Person. Um, this album is pretty famous because it's the seed of the vaporwave genre, uh, which became, became kind of like a meme music on the internet because, um, for one thing, it's like quite easy to make. Anyone with like a basic digital audio workstation can make pretty decent vaporwave music. but besides that, and besides the sort of like comical, like meme um, aspect of it, I think there is something that's really compelling. Like that's why it's become so popular. Um, so the techniques that the caretaker and Chuck Person use are quite similar. You know, both of them are sampling and looping and echoing using, like, jagged cuts um, to make new music out of, like, existing recordings. Um, but the space that Echo Jams creates is one that couldn't be more different to the caretakers' spaces. Um, so, the music of Chuck Person, I think, is sort of an, it's an embodiment of the present as a timeless space, you know? It's constructed out of the materials of the past, but it doesn't register the passing of time. Um, In this music, you hear a sort of, like, narcoticized circulation of the same endlessly, you know, the endless, endless, endless same thing. Um, But there's no, there's none of, like, the fear or disorientation that that the caretaker has. Um, The way Chuck Person uses it, it's really nice to listen to, you know, it's like a sort of ultimate, like, opiate pleasure. Um, So Chuck Person, I think, is sort of celebrating and, you know, reveling in this disappearance of time. Um, He's sort of uh, obsessed with this sort of nostalgia mode where you can just disappear into this, into these fragments of the past. Um, And the caretaker is also sort of obsessed with this disappearance into fragments of the past, but he associates this not with pleasure, but with you know terror and disorientation um, and ultimately death So, um, the next thing that I want to talk about in relation to the caretaker um, is the Stanley Kubrick movie, The Shining. Um, Of course, the name The Caretaker is a reference to one of the characters in The Shining. Um, Also, the first album that Kirby released under the name Caretaker was called Selected Memories from the Haunted Ballroom, which is a reference to the location where the caretaker character appears in the movie. Um, so I think we can look to The Shining to uncover a little bit more about what um, the music of The Caretaker is about. So I think it'll be helpful to give a short little plot summary of The Shining. Um, I apologize if you haven't seen it, although um, you really should see it. I'll try not to spoil too much. Um, i basically going to set up the characters and situations. But if you really hate spoilers, maybe... Um, cover your years for the next minute or so. Um, so The Shining is basically the story of a three-person nuclear family. You've got Jack, the father, Wendy, um, the mother, and Danny, who's a son of maybe five or six years old. Um, and they spend the winter in a hotel called the Overlook Hotel, which I believe is supposed to be somewhere in Colorado. Um, so Jack's there um, because he has a job as the maintenance man, so the hotel closes for the winter because um, it snows a lot, it's hard to keep the road to the hotel maintained. Um, he's also there because he's an aspiring writer, um, and he thinks that the uh, isolation, the peace and quiet provided by this um, winter job will allow him to finally like write his debut novel. Um, Yeah, so Wendy and Danny come along, um, simply because they're his family. So, like I said, the character, the caretaker, and the name of the album, The Haunted Ballroom, refer to a specific scene from the movie, um, which is the one where Jack um, hallucinates the empty ballroom, which is filled with characters from the 1920s, you know, from the, the heyday of the hotel. Um, and while he's at this party, he runs into and, um, starts talking to a butler, um, who turns out to be the former caretaker of the hotel. Um, but he tells Jack in the famous line, um, you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. Um, and of course, this is important in the movie because Jack knows that a former caretaker has, um, murdered his family, um. This is the point where he's told that he is actually the caretaker. Um, so, The Shining is hailed as one of the greatest horror movies of all time, but it's really not a conventional horror movie. You know, um, to figure out what's what's compelling to Leland James Kirby about this movie, why it shows up so much in his music, uh, we need to understand like what's going on in the movie itself. So. Um, one big difference from like a standard horror movie in The Shining is that um, the sort of mechanism behind the horror is never entirely made clear. Um, in a typical horror movie, you know, you know exactly what's going on. Um, the tension comes not from like confusion, but mostly from like the primal thrill of the chase. You know? will, the, um, will the victims or protagonists be able to escape the evil thing that's chasing them? And you know exactly, more or less, what the evil thing is. You know, it's maybe the ghost of like a traumatized dead person. Um, maybe it's a videotape that kills you if you watch it. Maybe it's like a crazy guy that puts like, young, attractive people in a gruesome obstacle course where they have to do horrible things to escape. Um, but in The Shining, it's never made clear exactly what makes Jack Nicholson's character go on the murderous rampage. You know, in the book, it's a lot more explicit. Um, he's possessed by the spirit of the hotel in the uh, the Stephen King book that the movie is based off of. Um, so in the book, he's sort of almost a victim himself of the malevolent spirit of the hotel. But this isn't the case in the movie, um, even if it's nominally the reason Kubrick, as a director, decides not to make it explicit. Uh, he allows for the possibility that what's possessing Jack isn't an external force, but something that was already inside of him. So if you try and think about what actually does drive Jack insane, um, it's important to note that it's not really his wife, um, Wendy. Um, In the final sequence, when he corners her in the bathroom, um, he turns around both because she. cuts him on the hand with a knife, but also because he realizes that his son, Danny, isn't there. Um, So it seems like Danny's the real object of the insanity of the murderous rampage. Why does he want to kill Danny? Um, Well, throughout the beginning of the movie, um, Danny, his son, starts to become more and more agitated after he sees um, a lot of manifestations of the horrifying events from the hotel's past. Um, Wendy, his wife, starts to think that they should take Danny away to a hospital. Um, Jack gets mad about this because he sees Danny's, um, anxiety and fears as getting in the way of what he calls his responsibilities. Um, that's his work at the hotel. Um, but also they get in the way of his wife's dedication to him. You know, throughout the movie, Wendy's been very, um, subservient to Jack and sort of waits on his um, every desire. Um, Now, throughout the movie, uh, first Danny and then uh, Jack and finally Wendy start to see manifestations of really horrifying things that seem to come from the hotel's past. Um, When they first arrive at the hotel, they're told a story of how a former caretaker sort of um, went mad and killed his entire family, um, including his children. Um, so eventually um, Jack starts to have these visions it starts to go more and more insane, um, finally ending with like a murderous rampage where he um, chases his son um, throughout the hotel grounds. I guess that was sort of a pretty spoiling description of the movie, I apologize. So one thing I think it's important to point out is that um, when Jack is talking about his work um, that Danny's interfering with, he, he means both his work at the hotel as a maintenance man, but also his work of um, writing a novel, You know, his personal work that he's, that's the, the real reason that he's taken this job. Frederick Jameson actually has a really great essay about The Shining where he makes the argument that the issue at the heart of the movie is that of artistic creation, basically the, uh, the making of meaning or order or sense out of life, um, specifically under the conditions of American capitalism. So his, his big argument um, is that Jack's frustration at his inability to write the novel that he came to The Overlook to write is at the heart of his breakdown. Um, Jack, he points out, is not an established writer. Um, he's writing not presumably because he has something to say, um, but because of the glamour of the image of the artist. You know, um, Jameson talks about Kerouac in particular, and the beats in general. You know, This um, sort of image of the writer as someone who is free to explore the world, who's this sort of renegade, who follows their own desires. Um, and then writes about them afterwards, you know. Um, and, of course, Kerouac is, like, the um, the ideal of this form of the writer. Um, but what Jameson goes on to say is that the problem um, for Jack, the character in The Shining, is that um, in the late 1970s, when the film is set, um, there's no space to be this kind of, like, beat writer anymore, um, regardless of whether you have talent, which um, it kind of seems that Jack doesn't. And again, you know, um, what was exciting and unique about the work of the Beats was, for the most part, not um, their writing itself, but their material. Um, Kerouac in particular is famous for not being a very good writer of prose. Um, What made him famous and successful was instead just the image of the road, um, the sort of like unexplored spaces and freedoms of the American interior. Um, in contrast to the sort of um, stuffy, civilized, lifeless, um, mundane um, city life. Um, But the problem is, um, by the late 1970s, um, according to Jameson, um, everywhere in America has essentially been incorporated into the consumerist, capitalist life world. There's no more of these um, unexplored spaces, to to find and write about you know if Jack Kerouac were alive in the 70s he would have been nobody because he wouldn't have been able to have the adventures that he had because the spaces um, that he explored and wrote about um, no longer exist they've been explored they've been mapped they're part of this sort of late capitalist economy Um, so in relation to this I want to bring up um, Jack's manuscript in The Shining which, um, another spoiler, um, it's revealed at the end that all he's been writing um, is the sentence, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, but over and over again in sort of different configurations on the page. Um, So to go back to the sort of conflation of the maintenance work and the writing work that Jack has, Uh, What brings them together is that they're both attempts to maintain the image of some idyllic American past. Um, The idea of America as a land of endless possibility and opportunity. Um, The maintenance work of the hotel is, of course, maintaining this sort of gilded age, roaring 20s world that the hotel was built for, Um, and Jack's writing is an attempt to go back to the sort of um, post-war freedom and plenty of America. And also what brings them together, of course, is that these are both inherently futile tasks. Um, The hotel can't bring back the Roaring Twenties and the American sort of leisure class. Um, And Jack can't bring back the air of the beats, uh, no matter how hard he tries. And that's sort of why Jack starts to hallucinate um, the people from the past. is because his work is based on attempt an attempt to try and bring them back into reality. Um, and as he sort of keeps hitting his head against the wall, as he's continually unable to do that, um, instead, he just um, hallucinates it happening. What Jack um, knowingly or unknowingly wants to get back to in the past is um, its culture refinement, Um, it's modernism um, and communalism, the idea that was present uh, both in the 20s and sort of in the um, um, 50s of the beats is the idea of progress without bounds, the idea that everything is continually improving, that there's so much to be found and discovered in the world, that there's so much raw material to create um, a perfect life from. Now, this becomes horrifying when you realize that um of course you can never actually get back there The sort of insane making idea of trying to get back to this idealized version of the past um you can see this in one particular scene which was for me on almost one of the most you know, scary parts of the movie um when wendy's running through the hotel looking for danny um as she knows that um, Jack is trying to kill him. Um, she sees the ballroom that Jack uh, hallucinated. But instead of it being filled with like living, laughing, um, bright people um, from the 20s, it's filled with a bunch of skeletons that are still wearing leisure clothes from the 20s, but are now um, you know, dead and covered in cobwebs. Um, so what's horrifying then about the idealization of the past, like Jack is doing, um, is that it hides the decay that's present in all things. It hides the fact that, um, like you know, everything ends. Death comes to us all. And the return of that knowledge, once you realize that any attempt to go back to the past is is just hallucination, is terrifying. So. To go back to the caretaker, the musician, um, we can't be sure that what I've just been talking about, uh, this idea of the past and idealization of the past, is something that was consciously on Kirby's mind when he was creating the music. But I think it's still definitely true in some way that it it exists um, in some form inside the the music. Um, So not only is the caretaker about the loss of the past and aging, but it's also about a sort of delusional yearning for a time of pleasure, laughter, and plenty, Um, and above all of possibility, the delusion that going back in time would solve the individual's problems, Uh, both the physical ones of aging and the psychological ones of loneliness and sort of foreclosed possibilities. Um, it's It's the horror of realizing that in your search for something better, you've been oriented by a popular culture toward the past instead of the future, and because of that, you've just been circling around the same things over and over um, with no possibility of escape. So the next aspect of um, James Kirby's work that I want to talk about um, is an early album that he made under the name V slash VM, which is called The Death of Rave. Now this is a project that shares um, a lot of qualities with his work as the caretaker. the difference is the, the materials that he's drawing from are no longer like 20s and 30s um, big band or swing music. They're instead um, rave music of the late, and late 80s excuse me, and early 90s. Uh, but still the same techniques of using source material and then manipulating and disfiguring it to create something new is at the center of the death of rave. But what I want to look at with um, this project in particular is the choice of rave music. Like, why is that um, an important um, genre to do this technique to? Um, so, I'm going to start off with a quote from Kirby about this album. He says, I used to go to raves when I was younger, went through that whole explosion in electronic music from 1987 to around 1992 to 93 it seemed like there was a new genre every single week. It was an amazing time in music to hear so many things happening and so many new possibilities opening up and to see and feel the energy of new music exploding on dance floors and in clubs. I think the death of Rave is about the loss in that spirit and a total loss of energy in most electronic musics across the board. I feel sorry these days for people when I go to clubs as that energy isn't there anymore. For me, those Death of Rave tracks are all about stripping rave music from all its energy and spirit of fun, taking the audio from the rave to the grave, if you like. The tracks are like energy flashbacks, frail figments of rave reconstructed in a serotonin-depleted brain." So this music is very much of its time. It's about a specific kind of music, and more than that, about the specific cultural scene from which that music emerged um now i can in no way claim to be an expert um, on the uk rave scene of the late 80s and early 90s um, although um, i can recommend a book by zadie smith called nw or northwest uh, which is about the afterlives of some of the people that participated in um similar scenes um What I can tell you about is the time that I snuck through a fence to avoid a ten-pound cover charge for a rave that was being held at a disused furniture warehouse off of Old Kent Road in Peckham, where in the cold gray light of early morning I watched people linger around the weedy, littered parking lot, dead-eyed, caked with the residue of sweat and makeup smoking cigarettes to ease their come-downs, and I wandered inside to a space mostly empty, still dark despite the dawn, where those still in the grip of drugs and emotions tried to dance to the music that pounded away as though it was still the peak of the night, the rhythm sounding in the vast emptiness and desolation more like commands to march, or the grinding of enormous machines. The chords and melodies no longer magical, transcendent harmonies, but simple and unconvincing as the smiling faces on the torn plastic takeout bags in the dirty parking lot outside. I can also tell you what my resident British rave correspondent told me, um, an account that he heard from a scouse at a party in London about how Liverpool in the 80s was torn by all kinds of social divisions, racial as well as class. Uh, but the entry of MDMA in the rave scene washed all of that away. Um, I was also told about a documentary which my correspondent described both as cheesy and naff. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, but it's about a group of men who used to go out to pubs and bars um, and get drunk and start fights. Uh, but after the entrance of MDMA into the city, they started to just out dancing and were able to express their love for each other and lost the anger that they had so um, what the death of rave is about is both of these sort of views of the rave scene both the sort of decay and dissolution um, that i saw and the sort of utopian vision that my correspondent sees um It's about not just the memory of the rave scene, but it's inevitable decay, the falseness of his escape revealed, Um, the scummy daylight of the walk back home or the waking up the next afternoon in a British town that's just one more day decayed, with no new prospects or opportunities besides the next weekend's escape. Uh, The death of rave is, it's like rave music heard from the outside, from someone who isn't entranced by the music and drugs who sees the artifact for what it is, uh, the hedonism of the damned. So rave music, um, more than most types of music, exists for a certain place and condition. Um, maybe the only similarity is raga music, which has certain you know, scales and forms designated for certain times of the day. Uh, but like this, rave music um, doesn't carry the same effect if it's not in the right place. Um, It's a music specifically for large collective spaces, for clubs and parties um, and it's also specifically a music for being on drugs um, and specifically one drug, um, ecstasy or MDMA. The other important aspect of the location of rave culture is that this is happening in the UK at the end of the Thatcher era Um, so um, the height of the rave culture in Manchester is often cited as 1988 which people call the second summer of love Um, Kirby puts its decline um, around 1992 or 93 Um, so yeah this is the end of the Thatcher years um, and the continuation of the, uh, conservative government. Um, so this is in Britain, it's the era of neoliberalization. Um, specifically, what that means is the, you know, the suppression of working class movements, the extension of the market to all aspects of life, um, the dismantling of the welfare state. In essence, you know, making life more difficult and more oppressive for most people in the country. Uh-huh. So I want to quote now from a book by Matthew Collins called Altered States. It's sort of an account of this period, um, specifically in Manchester. Um, So he starts out saying, um, their story began optimistically, with the raw idealism so often inspired by the first rush of ecstasy. They wanted to spread the word, to make things happen, to live the dream. This, for them, was paradise revealed. And he goes on to say they imagined, of course, that this beatific state would endure forever. And of course it did not. First, gangsters moved in to steal the money generated by their illegal raves. Then local newspapers started to publish hyperbolic headlines about the dangers of narcoticized revelry. And finally, the police set up roadblocks to stop their raves completely. So what happened... Really, is that um, the rave culture, like so much else about the United Kingdom at that time, was swallowed by the market and stripped for everything that could be sold, essentially. Um, by 1993, you know, within, within only like half a decade from the um, explosion of rave culture in the country, um, it was an industry worth about 1.8 billion pounds by some estimates. Um, so what you have is the sort of commercialization of this um, previously grassroots kind of culture. And the example of James Palumbo I think is really illustrative. Um, so James Palumbo was formerly a City of London trader, so a you know, financial guy, um, who, I don't have the exact date actually, but um, saw the financial potential in rave culture and um was one of the early successes so this is not um you know one of the party kids that invented um, the rave scene he's a the son of a property developer called lord palumbo and a financial um, trader um so he founded the ministry of sound which is a quite famous club in london but um, one of his real um big innovations, um, although it doesn't belong to him alone, was to see the club as sort of um, just one part of a larger business. Um, the club serving essentially as marketing for all these other um, like business ventures um, under the same brand of the Ministry of Sounds. So, um, along with the club, um, he started a record label, um, a merchandise and clothing label. Um, a radio station, even package holidays to famous party locations like you know, Ibiza, etc. Um, so, when this starts to happen, when all of this money and advertising starts to enter the scene, um, what you have is the rave replaced by the image of the rave. You know, it's drained of the original significance, um, what it meant to the people that started having these parties. You know. With them, and was like um, flexibility, open-endedness, um, individuality, the ability to like create your own life and world um, according to your own standards, um, in defiance of the prevalent sort of neoliberal ideology of the time. So, what's especially I think um, terrible about what corporate promoters like Colombo did is that they managed to maintain the image of these traits, you know, of a sort of alternative scene, a scene of possibility and progress and a sort of movement towards a better world. Um, They maintained this image, um, but without any of the substance, you know. They had the image of freedom and liberation, but within a sort of very carefully managed and monetized and marketed medium. Um, So the popularity of rave culture didn't mean that its original values of subversiveness and creativity and individual expression and, above all, of of liberation, um, these things hadn't succeeded. In fact, the exact opposite had happened. Uh, British society had whittled these things away from the raves and only kept the part that was useful in a consumer society. And I want to go back to that um, quote about Kirby's album, The Death of Rave. The quote goes frail figments of rave reconstructed in a serotonin depleted brain Uh, so what that points to for me is uh, back to mdma uh, the drug of choice at the rave scene so a basic overview of how mdma works is um, it sort of promotes the creation of serotonin in the brain serotonin is a neurotransmitter um, associated with you know pleasure um, ecstasy um, hence the name Um, but then what results from that is that um, because the brain produces all of this serotonin um, afterwards after the effects have worn off it can't create the sort of average baseline level Um, so a common after effect of mdma is a sort of you know depression or melancholy after the fact Um, and i think that that's an interesting symbol to look at um, the scene as a whole. You know, you have this initial um, sort of ecstatic, utopian vision of harmony and peace and liberation for everyone. Um, But this lasts only as long as the drug itself lasts. Um, Afterwards, you're left without any of those illusions. You're left um, worse off than and you started out um, you know, sad, depressed, melancholic. So what I think this album, The Death of Rave, is about is um, specifically this, um, the superficiality of what the rave scene seemed to be to its participants. Um, the illusion of, of liberation and harmony disappearing before your very eyes, um, the drug wearing off um, the real world appearing uh, with even more force and banality than ever had before. The death of rave is a counterpoint to the present state of rave culture um, in its superficiality, um, being more polished and louder and more inviting than ever, but without the substance and the possibilities um, that propelled it at first—the um, death of rave—is the truth at the heart of of the current scene. You know, rave music drained of color and life, cold and desolate. This music and culture that so many people, um, Kirby included, um, thought contained the seed of a new world, um, is now withered and dry. Um, I think you can debate me on this point but I don't think that this is um, what Mark Fisher called nostalgia for the future I think this is pure elegy I think this is a lament for the fact that um, this dismantling of the rave scene was always going to happen that there was no um actual momentum and truth behind um what people thought it was, you know, that the market was always going to come in and dismantle it. Um, The idea that uh, maybe you can imagine an alternate route, an alternate future, um, but that was never going to become reality. And all that's left behind of this world that used to seem so limitless is just vague hiss and throb, empty. Noise. So Kirby has done to the music itself what time, money, and politics did to the rave scene. He's pared away the inessentials, stripped it for parts, and the Death of Rave album is the sound of what remains. So the next project that I want to talk about um, is the soundtrack that the caretaker did for the movie Patience After Zabald. Uh, I think, like The Shining, um, looking at other pieces of artwork that are associated with um, ca- the caretaker's work can give us new routes into the meanings of his music. Um, in this case, I think it's especially interesting because the association um, is an external one. It's not something that the caretaker has specifically tried to associate with his music. Um, this is something that the producer or director of *Patients After Sebald saw. Um, themselves, um, separate from whatever Kirby's intent was with the music. So the movie, um, Patience, After Sebald, is actually a documentary um, mostly about a book and its author. The book is um, Rings of Saturn, the author Vega Zabald. And I think it's more productive maybe to talk about the book than the movie for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I think the book is just better um, and a richer piece of artwork than the movie. Um, This is for a number of reasons, um, but an important one is that The Rings of Saturn, the book, um, is a very unique document. To try and make a travelogue or biography or um, even a history movie out of it is to try and film a ghost, I think. what's about the book doesn't show up on the film. Uh, it's not quite there. The landscape and the places don't match up to what Zabal put into them, uh, because the whole point of the book is what is invisible and buried. Another reason that I want to talk about the book instead of the movie is that um, the film, I think, is an attempt to mediate between the, um, the book and um, Kirby's music. Um, the film is the intersection of these two sources, um, the small area at which the two intersect. Um, and so I think that it's better to go back to the beginnings, to the original sources. And finally, I think because the film is limited in time, and so it doesn't have the capacity to investigate everything that Zabel discusses in the book. So, who is Vege Zabel? He's a German writer. Actually, what's surprising uh, is that I feel like more um, English speakers and English readers have heard about him than um, German speakers and readers that I've spoken to. Um, He was born in Wehrtach, which is a small Bavarian town on the German-Austrian border. Um, He actually began his studies right here at the University of Freiburg. But then continued to spend most of his academic career at. Um, the University of East Anglia in Norwich, England. So I think that's um, possibly a reason for what seems, um, at least to me, to be a bigger popularity in translation to English than the original German. Um, So I want to talk now about Rings of Saturn, which is maybe his most famous novel. Uh, It's a really unique book. I said that already, but it's really um, inherently unclassifiable. Um, there's something incorrect in even calling it a novel, I think. Um, the first time I read it, I would have called it a memoir or a travel narrative, but it's not precisely those either. So it's structured as sort of an account of Zabald's wanderings through the English countryside um, and his sort of musings and associations with the things he sees and the people he meets. So it's kind of, yeah, in that way it's a combination of travel, narrative, um, personal reflection, and historical sort of didactic vignettes. Uh, What he does is sort of, through all of these different um, forms of writing, he ties together a group of objects and events and places, um, he ties them all together into this sort of web of meaning, and what results is I think a very Unique um, kind of signification. Um, it's not really symbolizing. Uh, when we think about a symbol, you know, we think about, um, for example, like the green light at the end of the dock that symbolizes Gatsby's love for um, whoever whoever that woman was, um, or like Oz symbolizes um, the great city of American capitalism, or the sun symbolizes the Pharaoh. You know, you have an object itself which is secondary to another, greater meaning, um, but it's not metaphor, either. Um, metaphor, of course, where the image is used to give the object itself a greater meaning. What's happening, I think, um, in The Rings of Saturn is that all these different elements of the novel um, draw their power and significance, not from any kind of like symbolic or metaphoric order, um, but from their historical truth or apparent truth. Um, it's because they're historic and biographical occurrences, which don't stand for anything beyond themselves, that they have such significance. And additionally, what happens in the novel as all of these different things pile up, um, and I'm going to get to some specific examples in a second. Um, by the end of it, um, all of these things have become linked to each other, like sort of like a web, um, so that by the end of the novel, a reference to any one of them um, will resonate the entire set of um, historical occurrences and objects and people. Um, sort of like in the way, if you like imagine a spider web, if you pluck one of the strings that'll set the entire web um, to vibrating Uh, by the end of the novel. These sort of recurring references all resonate with one another, um, even though none of them really symbolize anything beyond themselves. Um, And what this net of meaning evokes, um, even though, like I said, there's no one greater reference but what ties them all together um, is something that can't be expressed directly, Um, but it includes um, death and atrocity and the passing of time, decay and chaos and desolation, um, forgetfulness, repression, um, but all of these things not as separate ideas, but as each constituting the other. So keep that in mind um, when I talk about the book more specifically. um, I've singled out some of the parts of it that um, are the most powerful to me, but in no ways should they be seen as like the essence or core of the book, um, because that happens only in the accumulation of many, many, many references throughout it. Um, And actually, I think this is an interesting intersection point with um, Kirby and his musical work. Um, so, both Zabel, the novelist, and Leland James Kirby, the musician, um, they both work primarily through um, scavenging and repurposing historical materials, uh, through picking up scraps that have been lost by history, and making something like a collage out of them. You know, a collage as something that is specifically um, greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, collages, a refusal to use new materials, uh, a refusal to make something that's entirely new. Um, this, they're both um, sort of turnings away from the present, um, of making something new that seems old, something that seems antique from the very moment of its conception. So now I'm going to talk about some of the specifics of the novel. Um, again, I want to remind you that um, in doing this, I'm really mutilating the book, and you should, um, should really read it yourself. Um, it's called The Rings of Saturn by Wege Sabald or W.G. Sabald. So the first sort of um, theme, even though that's not really the right word for it, that I want to talk about, um, is the idea of um, irreversible change, but at the same time, s- like, stillness and lack of change the sort of way that irreversible change leads to this eternal stillness Um, so one of the examples that I picked out here was um, a family called the Ashburys that Sebald meets while he's walking around Um, the Ashburys are living in an old estate house um, but they don't have the money to keep it up so throughout the years it's been decaying around them and they've been like retreating from the rooms as they become unlivable. Uh, they don't have the money to repair it because it's an estate house and a sort of economic and social structure of the estate um, has disappeared. And I think the most indicative line from this passage um, is when Zabal talks about um, this is a quote a life that was becoming more innocent with every day that passed. So at the heart of this sort of um dissolution and decay the irreversible destruction of something that once was but can be no longer um sees innocence a sort of return to the beginning to childhood to sort of a primal state of existence um, and one that has a certain sort of um, stillness and permanence to it and related to that um, is a later scene at um, an abandoned military test site in Warford. Um, And here I want to quote directly from Zebald. He writes, the closer I came to these ruins, the more any notion of a mysterious isle of the dead receded, and the more I imagined myself amidst the remains of our own civilization after its extinction in some future catastrophe. To me, too, as for some latter-day stranger ignorant of the nature of our society, wandering about amongst heaps of scrap metal and defunct machinery, the beings who had once lived and worked here were an enigma, as was the purpose of the primitive contraptions and fittings inside the bunkers, the iron rails under the ceilings, the hooks on the still partially tiled walls, the shower heads the size of plates, the ramps and the soakerways. Where and in what time I, what I truly was that day at Orfordness, I cannot say. Even now, as I write these words, so what strikes me about that passage is that um, in the very permanence of these concrete, you know, military structures, like designed to withstand a, a barrage, um, within that very permanence, they sees. Um, irreversible change and the passage of um, possibly centuries or millennia of time. But the next sort of theme that I want to talk about um, is in many respects sort of the opposite of this. Um, Whereas before we had the sort of permanence uh, despite decay and dissolution, another theme of the novel is the historical crime that's gone not just unpunished but entirely forgotten so there's one particularly gruesome uh, passage about the massacres committed by the ustasha the um, croatian fascists uh, during world war ii Um, what's especially horrible i think about this description is that zebald points out that um, not just were men, women, and children murdered, but um, thousands of children were spared um, and then adopted and raised as Croatian Catholics, um, children of a persecuted minority who were raised um, as the ones that had done the persecution, uh, children whose entire history was erased by this adoption, children who would be raised to hate their own culture to hate the memories of their mothers and fathers without knowing that they were, in fact, their mothers and fathers. Um, Related to this, um, I think, is a passage in which a German Jew who fled Berlin during the Nazi period um, speaks of a return visit to the ruined city in 1947. Um, He'd gone back to see what he could recover Of his old life and the passage goes as follows if I now think back to that desolate place I do not see a single human being only bricks millions of bricks a rigorously perfected system of bricks reaching in serried ranks as far as the horizon and above them the Berlin November sky from which the presently the snow would come swirling down a deathly silent image of the onset of winter which I sometimes suspect may have originated in a hallucination, especially when I imagine that out of that endless emptiness I can hear the closing bars of the fry shoots overture, and then, without cease, for days and weeks, the scratching of a gramophone needle. So this passage um, jumped out to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, the image of the endless scratching of a gramophone needle, I think fits, um, surprisingly well with the music of the caretaker. Um, although I have no evidence to suggest that the caretaker would have read this novel. Um, but beyond that, I think the image, um, as it's remembered by this, um, German Jew, um, what he remembers from his visit to Berlin is no people whatsoever. Um, when he recalls going back there, he doesn't remember seeing any people whatsoever. Only the bricks, all of the history of uh, human tragedy, which he might have seen, simply is unable to be recalled by him. It's repressed into disappearance. And. As Sebald writes again and again about the crimes of history, um, one thing that continues uh, to be evoked is specifically their senselessness, Um, the absolute madness and insanity at the heart of, of the people who perpetrated them. I think one of the most succinct images of this is when Sebald's writing about Joseph Conrad the author of the heart of darkness um, sailing down the coast of africa and what conrad witnessed was um, on one day a belgian ship which was firing um, cannons into the coastal jungle of the congo um, but was what was strange about this was that there were no enemies or people in sight whatsoever the ship was firing into apparently abandoned jungle um, seeming like with the target of its rage was the jungle itself, or the idea of the jungle, or some other nameless horror which it tried to make the jungle a symbol of. This leads me to another passage, perhaps one of the few times in the novel that Zabald um, generalizes. You know he works so often in specifics in this book that um, this exception, I think, is an important moment. Um, he's speaking of the deforestation um, of the United Kingdom, of the fact that very little of the ancient woodlands remain on the island. Um, and then he speaks of um, slash-and-burn agriculture, where early humans would um, simply uh, burn down sections of forest to make them available for agriculture, and then move on. and. The passage that I wanted to read goes as follows. Combustion is the hidden principle behind every artifact we create. The making of a fish hook, manufacture of a china cup, or production of a television program, all depend on the same process of combustion. Like our bodies and like our desires, the machines we have devised are possessed of a heart which is slowly reduced to embers. From the earliest times, human civilization has been no more than a strange luminescence, growing more intense by the hour, of which no one can say when it will begin to wane and when it will fade away. This is the closest that Zabal gets to a sort of unifying um, historical or intellectual principle in the book, the idea that when you come down to it, everything that humans do, every aspect of our society and culture, is combustion, is violent, fiery destruction, that nothing, not even the most insignificant commodity, can be accepted from this. But at the same time, um, it often doesn't seem so violent and explosive this destruction. Um, One of the symbols actually of destruction and decay that recurs quite often in the book is that of sand, the most sort of unremarkable and banal of substances. Um, So like I mentioned, sand occurs many times throughout the novel, um, but I want to read the first reference to it. Um, So Sebald is talking about um, a colleague of his who's a scholar of French literature. Um, he says, Jeanine maintained that the source of Flaubert's scruples was to be found in the relentless spread of stupidity, which he had observed everywhere, and which he believed had already invaded his own head. It was, so supposedly once he said, as if one was sinking into sand. This was probably the reason, she said, that sand possessed such significance in all of Flaubert's works. Sand conquered all. Time and again, said Janine, vast dust clouds drifted through Flaubert's dreams by day and by night, raised over the arid plains of the African continent, and moving north across the Mediterranean and the Iberian Peninsula, till sooner or later they settled like ash from a fire on the Tuileries Gardens, a suburb of ruin or a country town in Normandy, penetrating into the tiniest crevices. In a grain of sand in the hem of Emma Bovary's winter gown, said Jeanine, Flaubert saw the whole of the Sahara. For him, every speck of dust weighed as heavy as the Atlas Mountains." So later in the novel, Sebald speaks of Dunwich, a town located on a cliff over the North Sea. It was one of the most important ports in Europe in the 13th century, Leibold tells us. Um, However, in that century, the erosion of the coast and cliff began. Um, Over centuries, the waves eroded the coast and cliff and dozens of buildings fell into the sea. Slowly, gradually over time, the coast and cliff receding inland and those buildings that were situated on this constantly receding line of coast and cliff falling into uh, the destruction of sand and sea. Um, and Zebald goes on to speak of um, Eccles Church Tower, which is a 12th century Norman construction which somehow fell down the cliff but remained standing on the beach below, though ruined, until 1890. I think what's especially horrifying about this story is the fact that the townspeople did not abandon Dunwich. Um, There's still a town by that name to this day, but uh, rather they moved gradually west, inland, as the land on which their homes and churches and farms and the graves of their ancestors, um, this land literally disappeared into sand and the ocean. It's the idea that in the face of this inevitable destruction, uh, not just of everything that we build and of us ourselves, but of the very memory and history uh, and artifacts of our existence, um, there's nothing that can be done, no flight we can take. Uh, We simply have to live on that cliff edge uh, for centuries, really for all of time. Um, and the final quote that I want to read from, from the Rings of Saturn is from the very first chapter. Um, and I think it, it sort of summarizes that um, idea of signification that I compared to a web earlier. Um, but in Zabald's own words, um, it goes as follows. I became overwhelmed by the feeling that suffolk expanses that I had walked the previous summer had now shrunk once and for all to a single, blind, insensate spot. In other words, all the things that Seewald had seen and been reminded of in this novel, um, they're all in some way part of the same thing. All of this um, violence and horror of history is condensed to one point, um, a point somewhat like a grain of sand um, in which nothing can be escaped but somehow um, everything is destroyed at the same time. So I want to try and tie this back to the caretaker and his music. Um, so I think what's important um, about the association of Zabald and the caretaker um, is the idea of scale. Uh, so we mentioned this a bit earlier, talking about Mark Fisher, but um, I think in Zabald um, these ideas that um, him and the caretaker share, so things like, um, loss, forgetting, uh, decay and destruction, um, these things exist in Sebald at the individual level, but, um, he makes it clear that you can't separate, um, these things on the individual level from them on the cultural, societal, or civilizational level. Um, So there's a sort of um, identical quality of um, destruction and forgetting on the individual scale and on the largest possible human scale. What Sebald makes clear is that although the problem of memory may affect us now as a species uh, more sharply than it has in the past, it's nonetheless not a particularly contemporary problem but one which is a fundamental issue of the human race Uh, many listeners of the caretaker probably focus on the individual tragedy of aging uh, forgetting illness and disorientation Um, for them the caretaker is an artist whose primary unit of investigation is the individual Um, and as I've said this is a very valid reading of his music but at the same time through Sebald we can see another Um, a reading in which the caretaker's music is about the multitude, the masses made indistinguishable by the fact that they've all been forgotten. Um, And that's what's tragic, for example, about the death of Rave, Um, the loss not only of individual friends, of individual parties or specific places, but the loss of the collective, the loss of the potential for a mass of people to come together in harmony, this central illusion of the rave scene. So I think one um, easy and kind of interesting tool um, for interpreting music is to try and count and separate out the number of people or characters within a piece. Uh, You know, like in a standard love song, there's two characters. There's the one singing the song, and there's the object of desire. I don't know, for another example, um, in Walk on the Wild Side um, by Lou Reed, there's many, many different characters um, from Andy Warhol's factory. You can do this in even uh, non-lyric music, like in classical music. You can often separate out um, characters based on um, different instruments or different melodic lines. Um, but if you try to apply this to the caretaker, it's really difficult to do. Um, although there's a lot of different sounds, none of them seem particularly like they express a single individual character. Um, it seems mostly like it's a lot of small impressions inside the mind of one very isolated person. Um, but along these lines, another interpretation that makes sense to me um, is for the sounds to stand not for a discrete number of differentiable people, but um, to sa- stand for an innumerable mass of people, um, these masses of forgotten people that Zabal writes about in Rings of Saturn. And along those lines, then, um, the caretaker's music would at the same time manage to register the tragedy of the individual fate at its most lonely and isolated, and the collective fate at its most faceless and anonymous. I think it's maybe relevant to point out that nobody really seems to have agency in Sewald's book. Uh, it's a collection of stories that are already over, of people who are hemmed in by their own story. Um, and by the forces of history. There's never really a sense of drama or tension or the possibility for escape. And I think that's a sentiment that exists very much in the caretaker's work as well. And so if you were to summarize the rings of Saturn in a sound, um, it might seem at first to be silence, the silence of the forgotten and condemned of the disappeared masses, But the book is also about how to continue, how to try and make sense of the world um, in spite of the senselessness and all the forgetting, about how we who have survived can continue to live and try and make sense of the world while we're in it. And the sound of this, which Sebald gives us, is that needle scratching through the ruins of Berlin It's the sound of noise, of absolute noise with nothing at all to grab onto, no figures in the streets. It's the noise of a sandstorm, the noise of the waves which, like in Dunwich, will gradually crumble and swallow the very earth itself. So to close out, I want to talk about something that I think can tie together these ideas that we've talked about. The idea of audio crackle and hiss in Kirby's music, that thing that Mark Fisher so focuses on, um, and the ideas of sand, erosion, and decay in Rings of Saturn, and the ideas of insanity in The Shining. Um, I think all of these can be tied together by the idea of entropy. Um, So I'm going to bring in Thomas Pynchon, because like the way that Hitchcock shows up in the background of every one of his films, or there's that pizza restaurant that shows up in every Pixar animation, I think Pynchon will inevitably make an appearance in every episode of Escape from Noise. So actually one of his early stories, uh, which you can find in the book Slow Learner, is entitled entropy um so in that um, story pinchon has a sort of um, ironic glib summary of the idea of entropy so um he takes it originally from um, the three laws of thermodynamics um, and summarizes those three laws in the following way you can't win things are going to get worse before they get better who says they're going to get better so I'm now going to try and explain um, this scientific meaning of entropy. Um, I'm going to do a really poor job, I think. Um, any scientists out there, please do not call in to correct me. Um, but I think what's important is the sort of human ideas which can be evoked by the scientific idea of thermodynamics. So at the most basic, simplistic level, um, entropy um thermodynamically speaking is the lack of ability to do work you can think of it in this way as the conceptual opposite of energy which is the ability to do work um so if you think about like one of the characteristic ways that we as humans produce energy like in a power station they depend on a difference in potential energy so for example in like a steam driven um coal or gas burning power plant what happens is you extract the heat energy from the coal or gas by burning it and this heats up a bunch of um, steam Um, you only get the power from the steam um, when you allow it to move from an area of like high temperature and high pressure um, to an area of lower temperature and lower pressure so you have to have that difference In heat energy in order to produce um, usable energy. So another way to look at this is to extract energy from a system you have to have a certain degree of order. Um, Now entropy is the opposite of this. Entropy is disorder. Entropy is what happens once the steam escapes into the atmosphere um, and you can no longer um, move a turbine with it. Um, It's the state of things in which there's no potential energy to be that can be extracted in a meaningful way and i want to um, focus on that idea of a meaningful way so meaningful is a key word here because um, actually there's another um, conception of entropy um, in information theory so Information theory is essentially the science of how to encode and decode information electronically. So at its most basic level, um, the idea of how can you, if you create a series you know, of ones and zeros, how can you send that somewhere else and make sure that someone else gets the correct string of ones and zeros, um, the correct information that you sent to them. So in this context, entropy refers to the amount of randomness in a transmission. Now, randomness is a bad thing. What you want to know exactly um, what's been sent. So any unsureness, any randomness is a bad thing. Um, so imagine, for example, just like a, a Wi-Fi connection. I don't know. Those, the, um, the modem is sending um, through air. Um, a string of words represented as ones and zeros. Um, Entropy is a measure of how sure you can be that you've gotten the right string of ones and zeros. Um, If you're really close to the router and you have a good connection, um, you can be pretty sure that you're getting the right sequence. That's low entropy. High entropy is if you're far away from the router, um, the signal grows weaker, Maybe there's a wall that's blocking the signal or there's many other routers in the area that are sending conflicting signals. Um, and you, So you can't be as sure that you've got the right string of ones and zeros. That's a situation of high entropy. Entropy, you know, it's a measure of, of how unsure you can be of the numbers that you think you have. Uh, maybe you've heard the term signal-to-noise ratio. Um, high entropy is sort of the same as a high noise level compared to the signal being transmitted. Um, Signal versus noise um, is essentially meaning versus chaos. Um, Increasing entropy then is the defeat of meaning, the defeat of sense, and inability to communicate. To go back to the thermodynamic um, context, entropy then is the inability to do meaningful work. Things will still happen, um, but what will happen is a breaking down of order. Entropy is the idea uh, that um, no matter what happens, any building that you build will eventually um, crumble and decay. Any book you print will eventually yellow and crumble itself. Um, Any gravestone that you carve will eventually have the names written on it, wiped away by the wind and sun. And contained inside this thermodynamic definition of entropy is the idea that this process will always occur. It's inevitable. Um, the amount of disorder always increases. It can be postponed or delayed, but it can never ultimately be escaped. And so this brings us back to the key word that I want to focus on, which is noise. Uh, like I said, noise. Um, speaking in terms of entropy, is the inability to do meaningful work or to transmit or communicate a meaningful message. Um, I think it resonates with Mark Fisher's idea of capitalist realism, which is a culture in which nothing new can be created. There's no new cultural work being done, no new ideas um, being come up with, just the recycling of old forms and old ideas but without the urgency and possibility and thrill which gave them life in the first place. To go back to music, entropy is the sound of crackle on a vinyl record, that thing that Fisher is so obsessed with. It's the sound of the record wearing itself out, of the grooves which contain the illusion of memory being gradually worn away and filled with dust and erased that's the sound of entropy and in this sense um, entropy is the revealing of the deception of consumer culture of digital life Um, in the era of mass production if your record wears out just buy another one if you listen to a song digitally it'll never wear out in the first place it can always be recreated This makes it seem like we've defeated entropy, defeated decay. But that's not the case. Entropy is a natural law. It's written into the very being of the universe. Entropy, that is noise, is all around us. We're all constantly sinking into noise. So we've nearly reached the end of our time slot. Let's try and pull this all together. What links all these meanings of noise that we've explored tonight? First, we looked at the caretaker alone and his music that explores Alzheimer's disease, amnesia, and the decay of personality and memory into the noise of a living forgetfulness. We went on to talk about Mark Fisher and hauntology, uh, his idea of the nostalgia for lost futures, nostalgia for the future which seemed possible but was never to be realized. We saw how Fisher expanded this individual significance of the caretaker's work, um, the descent into noise of the individual personality and consciousness to that of the descent into noise of culture and politics at its largest level. Uh, a melancholy not just of the individual, but of a culture which cannot make sense of the present and is is instead condemned to imitate endlessly the past. We then looked at The Shining, which, according to Frederick Jameson, is a movie in which um, the insane delusional desire for the possibilities of the past is a result of the inability to create a culture or community um, with potential in the present um, and that has the horrifying effects seen in the movie. Um, We continued then to talk about the death of Rave and the Manchester Rave scene, an album which is an elegy for the dead dreams of the promise of the late 1980s club scene, drained of life by oppressive legislation and parasitic businesses and possibly um, by the fact that the very potential that the scene seemed to have was only an illusion created by the drugs which fueled it. We went on then to talk about Vege Zabald's novel, The Rings of Saturn. Um, Kirby's connection to Sebald via the documentary allowed us to read his music alongside Zabald, to see it not only as the dramatization of the dissolution of an individual, but also as a dramatization of the process by which this very individual dissolution turns into cultural and historical dissolution of the masses of people forgotten to history, Um, the historical dissolution of societies and the numbness and ignorance that eventually washes over every victory, tragedy, and horror. Finally, we talked about entropy. Um, We very likely mangled the scientific and technological definitions of entropy, but we did this to try and get at what's valid at least um, on the literary level, the idea that disorder and the lack of meaning will, in the long term, always grow. So what is noise then? What are we trying to escape on this show? It's the inevitable erosion of meaning and feeling that occurs over time. Think about Jack in The Shining, writing all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over and over again. It's the repetition of artistic and cultural forms until through this endless repetition they no longer seem to signify or convey anything at all. It's the crackle and hiss on records the original song being wiped away by the very act of experiencing it, dissolving into chaos and disorder and the amnesia of history. It's the erosion of entire cultures, of the very land on which people live, that we saw in Zabald's novel. It's the idea that there is no escape, that senselessness only grows that any attempt to fight against this will only prolong our suffering. So, is there any escape from noise? The inevitability of entropy is not a death sentence. On the scale of a human lifetime, even of many lifetimes, order and meaning can be created and maintained, but it must be maintained actively, persistently, vigilantly, will not persist on its own. To escape noise, one must be able to honestly face everything we've discussed and take it into account. You cannot turn away from this. To escape noise, one must escape through noise, not away from it. So, is there a musician, or really any artist at all, whose work and aesthetic project can give us a way out? Could possibly reverse the tide and ceaseless circulation of emptiness in which we all find ourselves? Tune in next week to find out. You've been listening to Escape from Noise. Have a lovely evening.